many of you will uh, know, of uh, Philip Pullman. He uh, has written many, many children's uh, stories, but uh, he uh, really has come to, to fame or notoriety, depending on who you, are, who you speak to, with uh, a trilogy uh, called His Dark Materials. The last one, published in 2001, was The Amber Spyglass. This um, great epic story uh, is actually a fantasy search for God. But God is not the all-powerful creator. Um, he uh, is only an angel, uh, ageing rapidly, preserved and manipulated by a mysterious ecclesiastical body called uh, the Magisterium. In the Amber Spyglass, the third uh, book, as um, uh, the story draws close to its conclusion, a bold lady called Mrs Coulter finds herself in the, pres- in the presence of the president of the Magisterium. She says this, Well, where is God if he's alive? Why doesn't he speak anymore? At the beginning of the world, God walked in the garden and spoke with Adam and Eve. Then he began to withdraw and Moses only heard his voice. Later in the time of Daniel, he was aged, he was ancient of days. Where is he now? Is he still alive at some inconceivable age, decrepit and demented, unable to think or act or speak and unable to die, a rotten hulk? And if this is his condition, wouldn't it be the most merciful thing, the truest proof of our love for God, to seek him out and give him the gift of death? Well, the story, as I say, is about seeking out God. And uh, finally, a young girl, Lyra, the hero, and a boy called Will, find the God of his dark materials, of Philip Pullman, imprisoned in a crystal cage. Lyra says, Oh, Will, he's still alive, the poor thing. Will saw her hands pressing against the crystal, trying to reach to the angel and comfort him. But he was so old and he was terrified, crying like a baby, cowering away in the lowest corner. He must be so old. I've never seen anyone suffering like that. Oh, Will, can't we let him out? Will cut through the crystal in one movement and reached in to help the angel. Demented and powerless, the aged being could only weep and mumble in fear and pain and misery and he shrunk away from what seemed like yet another threat. It's all right, said Will. We can help you hide at least. Come on, we won't hurt you. Shaking hands seized his and feebly held on. The old one was stuttering a wordless, groaning whimper that went on and on, grinding his teeth. But as Lyra reached in to help him out, he tried to smile and bow. His ancient eyes, deep in their wrinkles, blinked at her with innocent wonder. Between them they helped the Ancient of Days out of his crystal cell. It wasn't hard. 
for he was as light as paper and he would have followed them anywhere having no will of his own responding to simple kindness like a flower to the sun. But in the open air there was nothing to stop the wind from damaging him and to their dismay his form began to loosen and dissolve. Only a few moments later it vanished completely. And their last impression was of those eyes blinking in wonder and a sigh of the most profound and exhausted relief. See, actually in today's world, I think Philip Pullman's picture of God has... um, at least a superficial claim to credibility. God's grip on our world seems to be getting weaker and weaker. Anglican church attendance uh, just uh, recently dropped below a million, an important landmark in many people's eyes. And and in non-Anglican churches the situation is not so very different. I think the average person in the street would recognise Philip Pullman's picture of an aged, weak God as light as paper. Perhaps soon he will dissolve into nothingness and it will be a relief for everyone. And those who know more do, do say with great confidence there are countersigns. Um, Christians who take the Bible seriously in this country, for instance, are a growing force. The Anglican Church, in the Anglican Church, evangelicals will be the majority in a decade or so. And uh, the little church grouping that we belong to, the FIC, is a a growing uh, church. But we must not kid ourselves. We must not hang on to those statistics as if they, they counted all the other big ones. We must take seriously that over the last 40 years there has been a dramatic uh, weakening of the influence of Christianity, of Christ, of the God of the Bible on Britain. Today God is, in most people's minds at least, aged, weak and light as paper. What I want you to see this morning though is that that is exactly what it was like in Isaiah's day. There was lots of religiosity. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll remember that from Isaiah 1 particularly. But uh, God really had lost his power and his influence in in the nation. People were great in Isaiah's day, not God. People, as they pursued, wealthy people, as they pursued that wealth, adding house to house in chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, unjust people who acquitted the guilty for a bribe in chapter 5 verse 23 or people, clever people as they reinterpreted good for evil in chapter 5 verse 20 or uh, um, self-indulgent people as they wallowed in shallow pleasures. People who mocked God in chapter 5 verse 19 saying, let God hurry, let him hasten his work, let, let, let we may see it, let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. 
And uh, chief amongst those people in Isaiah's day, most prominent in the nation, was the king, King Uzziah, or at least right at the beginning of, um, of Isaiah's ministry uh, he was. Uh, Uzziah, the king, had had a long reign and he had overseen a period in Israel's history of peace and prosperity. He ended his life actually uh, leprous and in seclusion. But uh, um, uh, the main characteristic of Israel's life at that point was that it was peaceful. However, when Uzziah died, there were ominous signs on the horizon. Of course, naturally, it was a time when uh, uh, there was uncertainty about who would take over and what the new king would be like. But there were more important ominous signs as well. The great nation of Assyria was beginning to threaten the region and um, Assyria's king, a man called Tiglath-Pileser, made Osama bin Laden look like a kitten. He was a terrible man who destroyed whole cultures wherever he went. And he was coming towards Israel. See, whenever people get big in the world, the world becomes terrifying. And that was the world in which Isaiah lived. This vision in chapter 6 then was in the year that King Uzziah died. It seems actually to be the vision that set Isaiah off on his prophetic career. Chapters 1 to 5 of the, of the prophecy of Isaiah seem to be a sort of summary of Isaiah's main message, at least in his early years. But um, having completed that summary, Isaiah takes us back to say, this is how I started off. I started off in the year that King Uzziah died. I started off when everything was uncertain, when there were massive threats and uncertainty, when people had become great and suddenly some of those people looked very terrifying. What's God going to do in Israel at that moment in its history? What's God going to do in this country? When, uh, a country when, where people have become great and God has become much less. Where people uh, offer us our only hope and people threaten us. Well, of course... Um, the first reaction to that is how, to, how, how, how are we to restore God's reputation in this city and this country. Our first reaction to that, of course, is we must organise greater and greater, more and more active evangelistic campaigns. And uh, in, in many sense, there's, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, good common sense in that. Christmas is a great opportunity for, for uh, sharing the good news of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, we've got so much happening right at the moment. Christmas card making. Um, you could take your friends to the Messiah in the, in the Sheldonian on the 1st of December. Come bring your friends to the live manger. Bring your friends to the carols by candlelight. Judy and I um, make sure that we as a couple 
um, don't get completely um, surrounded only by Christian friends. We make real active efforts to, to cultivate and generate friends outside uh, of the church because we love them. We want to, to share God's love in a, in a much wider environment. So we make sure that we have dinner with friends. That, uh, over Christmas period we'll be having lots of friends from the street and people that we hardly know from the street into, into our house. We try and do that. But God's first answer is not to organise massive outreach. That's what I want you to see this morning. God's answer in a day when uh, he seems to have become as weightless as paper. God's answer is to show himself to one man. And in revealing himself to that one man, Isaiah, Isaiah becomes a servant of God. I want to see then, this morning, five necessities, five things that had to be built into Isaiah's life if he was to be useful in serving God. And the first of those, the most important one and the one we're going to spend the most time on is Isaiah needed a renewed vision of the true God. In the year, verse 1, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, the train of his robe filled the temple. The king is dead. Long live the king. Uzziah is dead. But actually the real king, the real king of Isaiah, uh, uh, of Isaiah's world, um, is alive and well. Isaiah sees his majestic kingship here. He is seated on a throne. He is high and exalted or high and lifted up. His robe, his his robe of office is so magnificent it, it fills the temple. This is a king such as the world has never seen. Seated in his temple, in his throne room, commanding angels, ruling over the whole world. This is a king as well who is Utterly holy. Verse 2, Above him were seraphs each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. Seraphim are, are fiery ones. And they surround him. But even these extraordinary uh, angels of fire actually are in awe of the great God. They have to cover themselves they must not look on him. They cover their faces with two of their wings. They must not be seen by him. They cover their feet with two more wings, covering their whole bodies. And they sing. 
They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That holy, holy, holy is a, is a very significant uh, phrase for, for Hebrews. If you wanted to say something was, um, uh, wanted to intensify something, you would repeat the words. If you wanted to say, I'm very ugly, you'd say, I'm ugly, ugly in Hebrew. That's, uh, uh, that's how they would, uh, they would say it. So if you wanted to say God's very holy, you'd say he's holy, holy. But they're not saying that. They're using actually an intensive form that's just found nowhere else. Because there is no form, really, that is good enough to, to express the perfection of God's holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. So these angels. He has this quality of holiness to the nth degree. He is infinitely holy, utterly holy. What does that word holy mean? It means simply perfection. By derivation, if anything that is holy must therefore be separated from this fallen and broken world. So often holy things are, are set aside, set apart from the, 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 uh, the generality of the world because this world is not perfect. God's holiness is his perfection. His utter, glorious, shining perfection. He is more perfect than you could ever imagine. The angels cry that again and again and again. And the, the power of that message is, is extraordinary. At the sound of their voices, verse 4, the doorposts and the threshold shook. The temple was filled with smoke. This is the greatest message could ever be pronounced by these angels. Shaking even God's temple to its foundations. Isaiah must see God's utter holiness. And Isaiah must see God's universal glory. Do you see the second thing they say? The whole earth is full of his glory. What, what, what does glory mean? Glory is sometimes uh, um, uh, a word used to describe radiant light from God shining so that the shepherds, which we'll be hearing more than enough of over the next few weeks, when they had the, uh, uh, the birth of Jesus announced to them in Luke chapter 2, um, saw a great light and it says the glory of the Lord shone around. But the essence of, the, of, of, of God's glory is not, 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 not so much the shining light but his solid, awesome presence. Psalm 19 says, 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun and the moon and the stars. Actually not nice little fields. You see God's glory in greatness. Or uh, Psalm 29 describes uh, um, God's glory in terms of a massive, overwhelming thunderstorm where all in God's temple cry, Glory, it says. Anywhere where greatness, power and awesome strength is, there is an echo of God's glory. There's a paradox as well here, isn't it? The angels are saying, the whole earth is full of God's glory. You could not see it. Or at least the vast majority of people did not see it. God uh, seemed to be miles away and quite inconsequential. But the angels are saying, it's not this aspect of God, is not really hidden. Look at the stars in the sky, millions of miles away, and you'll see God's glory. Look at a raging storm and you will see God's glory. The whole earth is full of God's glory. His holiness may be hidden. His royal authority may be hidden. His glory shouts at us from his creation. The immediate impact of that uh, vision, we've already said, is shaking of doorposts, filling of the temple with smoke. (coughs) This vision that Isaiah is given of the true God, the real God, ruling over his world, actually profoundly influences the whole book of Isaiah. The theme of glory, of God's glory, hidden and yet longing to be revealed and if only people would see it. It comes up again and again in Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 verse 5 for instance, the glory of the Lord we are promised will be revealed. All mankind together will see it. In Isaiah 42, a mysterious figure called the servant who we're going to see later this morning, who's going to bring justice to the nations, will do it because Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. Or in Isaiah 48 verse 11, God's great purposes in history are, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, says God, I do this. How can I let myself be be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Or in Isaiah 6, the great culmination of Isaiah's vision with a new heaven and a new earth. And there we are told in verse 18 of uh, Isaiah 66, the nations will see my glory. Indeed, in that period, verse 19, those people from all nations everywhere will proclaim my glory among the nations. 
God's glory revealed to all people is, is, is the great hope and expectation of Isaiah. The theme of God's holiness is, is, is woven through this book as well. Uh, Isaiah has a characteristic phrase, the Holy One of Israel, God is called, 26 times in, in this prophecy. And the theme of God's kingship as well drives the whole, uh, uh, whole prophecy uh, of Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, a great high point in Isaiah where uh, um, a, a great, great cry goes up that the good news is going to be proclaimed. The good news. It's very interesting. Let me read it to you. How beautiful on the, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Your God is king. This is the good news. God really is king. God is utterly holy and perfect and will not tolerate evil in his world forever. God who displays his glory in the heavens now will show his glory to all nations and then the end will come. That's the true God. This is a God both hidden and revealed. It doesn't seem to be there. And yet when God lifts the veil for a moment, his people see him. This is the, one, the God we must know. We must trust if we are to belong to him at all. And the measure of how well we know this true God will be the measure of how useful we are to him. In a world where God seems to be so light and inconsequential, God chooses to reveal himself one person at a time to people and to change their lives forever. The next element, though, of Isaiah's experience, again, is for, is for all of us. An essential element, an essential response to those who've seen the true and living God. Isaiah reveals a profound sense of sin. Woe to me, verse 5, he says, uh, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord Almighty. Woe to me, he says. You remember last week we had, uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 5, we had six woes pronounced on the nation for their sin. And we said at that moment that six is a strangely incomplete number in the Bible. Seven is God's number of completeness. Here's the seventh woe. Upon a man who actually is chosen to stand for God, to be God's servant. And yet he must recognise deep in his heart that he, when he sees the living God, when he faces him, is as much in trouble as anyone else. He is in trouble because of his own personal sin. I am a man of unclean lips. And in trouble because of his communal sin. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Yes, there is a sense in which we are our brother's keeper. God does take seriously the community we choose to live in. When we see that, we must be profoundly aware of our failure. Yeah, sin today is a snigger word, isn't it? It's sinful to eat cream cakes. That's, that's, that, that's, that, that's about the, the, the depth of, um, of sin in our world. Guilt, many people feel, is dehumanising. So they, give what they, they, they speak about being broken and being damaged. Because life or other people are to blame. But you see, brokenness denies our dignity as responsible agents. Certainly, there are ways in which our lives are broken through no fault of our own, through what other people, uh, people have done to us. And God knows that and understands that. But if we hide from ourselves our personal moral responsibility for the way we have responded to those things, for the way we have chosen to live our lives, we lose something of our true humanness, our true dignity. Now it is part of our dignity as human beings that we are prepared to stand up and say, I am responsible for the mistakes that I have made. Before a holy, holy, holy God, I can only say, woe to me, for I am ruined. You can tell someone who knows the true living God because they always have a profound sense of their weakness and inadequacy. The great um, one-time master of Christchurch, actually in Oxford, John Owen, said, he, hath, who, he who hath slight thought of sin never thought great thoughts of God. When we see the living God, we see how far we have fallen short of him. 
Cornelius Pertinger in a, in a great book in, uh, entitled Not the Way It's Supposed to Be and says of churches and the way that churches deal with sin these days. He says, the new language of Zion fudges. Let us confess our problem with human relational adjustment dynamics and especially our feebleness in networking. Or, I'd just like to share that we just need to target holiness as a growth area. Where sin is concerned, he says, people mumble now. We cannot afford to do that. Actually, you see, the root cause of why the world, and even Christians very often, are frightened to acknowledge the full depths of their sin is because we haven't seen what Isaiah saw next. When we do, you see, we need not be ruined at all. Because Isaiah was given a deep assurance of forgiveness. Verse 6. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. A number of things we learn about God's response to a sincere confession of sin here. First of all, God always ministers to our particular felt point of need. Isaiah felt that his lips were the key problem in his life. So his lips were touched. But God's forgiveness is not just for those things that we are particularly confident, uh, um, 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 uh, aware of. God's forgiveness is comprehensive. He was worried about his lips, but God says, your guilt, your sin is dealt with. All of it. And God's forgiveness is instantaneous and complete. There is a repeated use of the, the perfect tense here in verse 7. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It is gone. And this uh, uh, um, action of the angel shows us something else very important as well. There is a price to be paid always for our sin. That's there in the word uh, atone. Your sin is atoned for. Atonement was um, dealing with sin at the cost of a sacrifice. And that's made even more clear by this, this coal, this burning coal from the altar. Sacrifices, at least some of them, were burned on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And uh, fire, symbolically, everywhere in the Old Testament, is used to signify actually God's wrath against sin. Those sacrifices were burned up on the altar in Old Testament Israel to signify God's consuming wrath against sin. They had died. Taken, uh, God's wrath had been uh, diverted onto those sacrifices. So that those who offered the sacrifice didn't need to fear punishment. Well, all in that little action, the angel reminds Isaiah his sin is atoned for at a price. 
more about that price in, uh, in a moment. But don't, uh, don't let's forget it. The third element then of, of uh, an essential necessity if we are to belong to God and to be used by God, we must have a renewed vision of God which will bring a profound sense of our sin on the back of which God gives us a deep assurance of forgiveness, complete because of a sacrifice. Isaiah's response then simply flows from this experience. It must he shows an eager willingness to serve. Verse 6. One of the seraphs flew... Oh, sorry, that's not... Um, uh, verse 6. It's uh, um, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah himself responds eagerly. I said, Here am I. Send me. That is the only way that anyone who has seen God in the way that Isaiah sees him can respond. Where are you at this morning? Now, perhaps for some of us, it was a bright, that was a bright, vivid reality years ago. We can remember a time when we said, here am I, send me. But that was years ago. Perhaps we comfort ourselves, well, I'm, I'm, I'm retired now, I can let others take the weight. No, we are never relieved of that great privilege and responsibility to go for God. For you, family responsibilities are looming large these days. And you say uh, to yourself, well, this is my responsibility. I'm relieved of that great call. No, no, no. Perhaps our lives will be reshaped by that new responsibility. But the call of God is not lifted from us. Perhaps for you, you're, you're thinking, well, I'll respond sometime. I'll um, get this, that and the other in order in my life. I'll make sure that I've got a secure home and a good job, a bit of money behind me. And then I'll respond. No. Now the only thing that excuses us from saying, here am I, send me, is if we haven't yet met the living God. If that's your situation, then don't try and go before you found him. But if you know in reality you have found him, even if your experience of him is not perhaps quite as vivid as Isaiah's, quite as, 
quite as shattering as Isaiah's. If you know in your heart you have found him, we none of us have any excuse. We none of us will want an excuse, will we? Here am I. Send me. Jim Elliot, who was a missionary who was martyred a few decades ago, wrote before his death, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Will you go? One final thing that we must uh, briefly interact with. And that is what Isaiah's commission was actually going to be. His commission was going to be go and tell this people be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused and go on and and so on. And no wonder he complains in verse 11, for how long, O Lord? And God doesn't come back and give him much comfort. Verse 11 uh, again, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left desolated. And verse 13, though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. Isaiah had to face the, the, the reality that his ministry in his day was going to be utterly fruitless. Now let's, let's get some perspective on this. Isaiah's prophecy is the greatest prophecy of the Old Testament. The things that Isaiah was shown and that he revealed to us, a later generation, are, are amongst the most glorious things in the Old Testament. The fruit of Isaiah's ministry over nearly 3,000 years now has been extraordinary, but he saw nothing in his life. And he had to be content with that. Let God decide what the results of our life must be. You know, I see young, eager people too often who, uh, who are actually excited about being sent by, by God because they think, oh, it'll be so glorious, I'll have all this response and then it'll feel so good. It may not. And then will your ministry have been wasted? No. God will produce the fruit he wants to from our lives. Our calling is to go. Let the results belong to God. Five necessities for serving the living God. We must have a vision of God, the real God, we, that will lead us to a profound sense of sin which God reassures us is completely forgiven as we confess it. That will issue in a willingness to serve. We must be clear. God will produce the fruit he wants. Let me just tell you something more though.
something actually that Isaiah didn't see at the beginning of his ministry. And only just started to see at the, towards the end of his ministry. He's uh, told at the beginning, uh, uh, here in Isaiah chapter 6, that uh, at the end of verse 13, as the terebinth and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And frankly, it's not at all clear what that means. But then the, uh, um, the theme of the stump and the seed grows in the prophecy to Isaiah uh, uh, that Isaiah has shown. So that in chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. His roots, a branch will bear fruit. God is going to produce great fruitfulness in the future. Fruitfulness which is barely hinted at in Isaiah 6. Or... uh, 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 Just going back through the chapter, the source of this atonement I mentioned, there must be a sacrifice somewhere here. In Isaiah 52, suddenly that sacrifice comes into clear focus. A servant, a servant who has been in focus more and more clearly, suddenly comes out of the shadows in Isaiah 52 and 53 and is sacrificed. A human being will die for Isaiah's forgiveness and ours. Just as God is in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. And Jesus takes on that theme in John chapter 12, speaking of himself as being lifted up. And John, just to explain it, just to make sure we haven't missed anything, quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 52 and says, um, uh, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. But when Jesus speaks about being lifted up, he is going to be lifted up on the cross. He is going to be lifted up in shame. The true character of God is revealed in Jesus, lifted up now, not in a throne room, but on a cross. Perhaps Philip Pullman, you see, was speaking truer than we might like to think. Philip Pullman, who described this weak God. No, this God is not only weak, as Isaiah 6 shows us, but he is prepared to be weak for us. He is prepared even to die for us. Dying, actually to use Philip Pullman's words, with a sigh of the most profound and exhausted relief. But quite extraordinarily, this is not just a fading out. This is dying for the sins of God's people and he will rise again. You know, they mocked Jesus on the cross. They mocked Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, come down. There's deep irony in that because he has come down. And he will not come down. God the Son has come down to the earth and he will not come down from his cross because he's lifted up there. You and I see far more than Isaiah ever did. And we have the privilege of seeing fruit that Isaiah never saw. Let's pray.